The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the third Doctor story, Carnival of Monsters. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode because we get some more of that wonderful listener feedback we like to get. And remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on Facebook at facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN. And be sure to leave us comments wherever you find us. We love to hear from you. And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are certain to enjoy called The Secrets of Star Trek. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Trek. But today, of course, we're talking about Carnival of Monsters. And Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens in this episode? This week, we open on a planet that is just getting over space COVID and is beginning to ease the lockdowns, but they're still super skittish about letting germy aliens visit them, and we encounter a bunch of supercilious, officious, conniving bureaucrats running the customs office at Spaceport. Arriving at the Spaceport are Vorg and Sherna, two human-looking aliens who are both interstellar carny trash, and while they bring, and they bring with them an entertainment device. Meanwhile, in their first adventure, now that the Doctor's exile on Earth has been lifted, the third Doctor and Joe Grant arrive on a ship in the Indian Ocean in 1926. But it seems everyone on the ship keeps reliving the last 10 minutes or so and can't form any long-term memories. Eventually, it's revealed that the 1926 ship is actually inside the entertainment device, which is known as a miniscope, a kind of zoo that shrinks large environments down to a small scale for the viewer's pleasure. Also inside the miniscope is another environment that is filled with drashigs, large, vicious, snake-like carnivores that are relentless hunters. The drashigs not only menace the Doctor and Joe, they also get loose in the inner workings of the miniscope. Outside the miniscope, one of the bureaucrats, Kalik, decides to allow the miniscope to fail and release the drashigs into the city. This will cause a crisis that will allow him to topple his brother, President Zarb, an unseen character, from power, and reintroduce harsh space COVID policies on the population again and squash their social problems. He may even start a war to unite the population. But first, the Doctor gets out of the miniscope and enlists Vorg and Sherna to help him link it to the TARDIS. That way, he can return all its inhabitants to their proper locations in space and time and also rescue Joe. The Doctor goes back inside the miniscope to get Joe, and while he's in there, two Drashigs get out and kill the conniving bureaucrat Kalik, before Vorg shoots them dead with an eradicator weapon. Eventually, all the 1926 humans and Drashigs are returned to their proper places, the coup against the unseen character President Zarb is defeated, and the Doctor and Joe leave Vorg and Sherna on the planet to make a living using carny tricks like the shell game. The end. Father Corey, overall impressions? I, I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, it was it 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 actually was a fairly tight plot, all in all. I mean, there was still plenty of running around 
Uh, I was going to say corridors, but actually running around electronic circuits, crawling around, crawling around and running around. But uh, no, it was it was a it was like I said, fairly tight. I I like the the ideas behind the the miniscope where you could have different uh, different environments and, you know, minute miniaturized inside of it and things like that. And I, I think we see it again in Doctor Who eventually. Or at least the idea of it. So, uh, no, I, I enjoy this one. Of course, it's Third Doctor. You know, I always enjoy the Third Doctor. How about you, Jimmy? Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's got a script by Robert Holmes. And with one exception, those tend to be good. Um, it's like other Holmes scripts. It's typically creative, cynical, and darkly comic. Uh, it plays with themes of bureaucracy and corruption and... Um, people conning each other and stuff like that. And so you have this interesting mix of the officious bureaucrats and also who, who Robert Holmes loves parodying mm-hmm. or satirizing and also the working man, you know, trickster uh, Vorg who's carny trash. And that is a term of art for people who don't know. It's used by people in the carnival industry itself to refer to their own. So I'm not being offensive there, certainly not deliberately. I'm using their own term for them. They even have um, Vorg uh, speak to the doctor in carny lingo, which is a developed form of slang that's almost like another language in, in at times. It has elements of Italian in it and other things. And he and we have multiple lines of authentic carny lingo being directed at the doctor because Vorg assumes the doctor is also a showman, that he's also a carnival worker, especially the way he's dressed. <laughs> and and so um, so he starts speaking to him in this in this argot. And the doctor is like, I'm sorry, I don't I don't understand. So uh, I'm in agreement, I guess, because I, I like this one, too. I always enjoy the third doctor's sort of uh, he sometimes has a little bit of a bluster to him and his lack of mm-hmm. patience with uh, people who are infuriating around him. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed that. This is another one of those. Jimmy, you and I talked about that Lower Decks episode recently uh, in the um the I have no bones and I must flee mm-hmm. where it's another one of those menagerie. They bring up the fact that, you know, humans mm-hmm. kept get getting caught up in menageries. And this is another one of those stories yep. where human beings are caught up in some alien species menagerie. And that's what we have here. So I thought that was kind of interesting that we just talked about that. And it's a it's a unique way of doing it. It's sort of a it's almost like a flea circus in that sense mm-hmm. where they're tiny little, uh, you know, people performing. Uh, you know, uh, routines that are by the by the the miniscope are yeah. causing them to loop, like you mentioned. And uh, so that was I thought was interesting and creative. And uh, I did, there was so many different elements to this story, and it doesn't all you don't get what all what all these things have to do with each other until you're kind of well into the story. It it, it kind of develops yeah. it a bit. At first watch, you're you know, unless you're unless you know the premise or unless you're really carefully watching and thinking you're going to think that we're we're cutting between two different places oh yeah we're 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 watching the spaceport in one story and then in a parallel narrative the doctor and joe are arriving in 1926 and you're assuming somehow these are going to link up in the future and we eventually the reveal is we're we've been watching the same place the whole time they're Mm -hmm. inside the miniscope in the spaceport right right uh, one of the things you mentioned was the uh, 
the, the uh, that home was it Holmes likes to Rip. write about you know bureaucrats and mm-hmm. functionaries, but he's also got this whole class. He, he's really writing about different classes of people as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know we have the these bureaucrats and then something called functionaries, which are essentially a slave class or yeah. almost like the working class in, or something. Yeah. yeah, almost like uh Dalits in well, India. They're, they're- they're kind of kind of slave class, kind of almost, you know, conscripted military type because they also do the, the defense of the country of the of the planet. You know, they're right. the ones that are running the, the weaponry or so ever. So it, it would be similar to like you like like India again, you know, in, yeah. you know, where the, the British uh, military conscripted mm-hmm. Indians to serve, but also to be the servants of the uh, of the, the, the generals and so on. Right. Right. Exactly. That works really well until you have a Sepoy Rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then you have, like, on board the uh, SS uh, Bernice, the, the ship that the, the Dr. Joe ended up on, uh, you also have this sort of upper crust British, you know, uh, f- uh, father and daughter on their way to India, by, by coincidence. Um, and, uh, you know, this they, they seem kind of out of touch, kind mm-hmm. of clueless. You know, it's this. It's often, I think Robert Holmes, especially, I don't know if other Dark Who writers did this too, but kind of just portrayed them as sort of kind of clueless about what's really going on around them. And mm-hmm. it, it, so the, uh, I thought that was an interesting connection between these things. And even just the fact that the miniscope itself and the, these, these carnival uh, folk are, uh, have this underclass, they treat people as property. And so there's this mm-hmm. theme going on throughout, which I thought was interesting. And how the Time Lords, as we hear from the doctor, they they set aside their famous neutrality for this instance to ban miniscopes because of how terrible they are and how they treat people like property. And the doctor reveals he was instrumental in having that legislation passed. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. One, of, one of the things that's um, interesting to me about this is so everyone on this planet, all the natives uh, are gray. And so mm-hmm. this is like a different kind of gray alien. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I think that I, I wonder if and and there, there's sort of two two kinds. Um, the functionaries have masks mm-hmm. on them and it's not clear. Is that meant to be part of their anatomy is, or is it meant to be a mask? Um, apparently, it's the latter because the bureaucrats also were going to be wearing masks in the original version of the script. But they decided to jettison those. Uh, in order to get a better performance from the actors right. so you can see their facial expressions. And basically, they're all they've they they have gray grease paint on all over their heads and faces. They wear gray clothing and they've all got male pattern baldness mm-hmm. um, with white, white silvery hair. And um, and so uh, and, and their bald caps start slipping toward yeah, in do. the later episodes. <laughs> um, but I, I wonder, since they're meant to be bureaucrats, if the selection of the color gray was deliberate, because you mm. can think of, you know, gray bureaucrats, yep. these faceless, mindless, you know, functionaries who are very officious and not not acting like full people. Right. Yeah. Well, even a lot of it is arguments of, you know, well, this tribunal is here for this purpose, but if we go any further, we have to go up the chain of the bureaucracy. And if you make any decision outside of this, you're violating. And, you know, it's there's a lot of conversation about that, of, you know, things that are legitimate decisions to make, 
oh, but you didn't have the permission to do that. So you should have never made that decision in the first place. Right. Like all of this weird, like um, following regulations and rules and referring to to oneself in the third person as oneself. And, oh, yeah. They yep. use the they use one as a pronoun constantly. <laughs> one, one, one can, one must. One is aware of certain flaws. One has no desire to be devoured by alien monstrosities, even in the cause of political progress. Yeah. They, they basically yeah. say one whenever they mean I. Uh, Yes. So the Lermans, uh, the, the, the Carney folk, uh, uh, they refer to humans as Tellurians. Mm-hmm. Is, is that new in this, uh, this story? Uh, for Doctor Who, yes, uh, okay. but not for other things. That's uh, tell, uh, Tellurian is a common adjective. It means, uh, I shouldn't say common, it's a pre-existing adjective. It means related to the earth. And in science fiction, it's often used at, or sometimes used as a reference to human beings, as Tellurians. Okay. So it was before Terran became the standard in all sci-fi, mm-hmm. Tellurian yeah. was another option. Okay. Uh, I thought that I, did, I didn't I didn't know that. So I thought it was interesting. I don't know where that term came from. So standard in sci-fi, except for Stargate, where they're the Tauri. But the Tauri, yes, mm-hmm. right. Uh, so the so as you mentioned, the doctor's taken is got the TARDIS working again. Like in the last story, we had uh, you know him get the well, TARDIS repaired. Working as the TARDIS works, let's just put it, it that way. <laughs> Actually, capable of making uh, you know, transplanetary flies. interplanetary yeah. runs, and so he's taking on a test run, and it's not going exactly well. And he yeah, he he, had, he, th- he thinks he's on Metabolus three, and right. That's a reference to a very significant planet we're going to go to in the future. Yep. And he, he and he keeps insisting they're on an alien planet, although Joe, even though Joe is sitting there saying we're on a freighter on Earth, like yeah. we're in an Earth ship. It says Singapore. There are chickens. And he just keeps insisting. No, no, no. And I like the fact that. At first, we're just supposed to think, oh, this is just a doctor being eccentric and sort of stubborn. But in fact, there maybe his instinct is to know that they are actually not on Earth. And so it, it just his 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 subconscious is influencing his conscious mind in that in that way. So I thought that was kind of an interesting subtlety that they, they put in there. The doctor has, and then this, I think this has been shown even in this show, uh, at this point in the show, that the doctor can kind of sense things about the planets that other people can't in time and, and space. And so he's aware that, yes, this looks and smells and feels like Earth, but this isn't Earth for whatever reason. Right, right. Although they do have some, the doctor and Joe making some errors in this. Um, you know, they once they realize they're on a ship in 19 from 1926, the doctor uh, Joe proposes, oh, we've slipped back in time 40 years. And it's like, OK, that would mean this episode is occurring in 1966, which would have been inaccurate even at the date of filming, much right. less the unit dating controversy. It should be 50 or 60 years in the past. Um, but then the ship is attacked, I guess, just for drama by a plesiosaur who plays no other role in the story. And (laughs) (laughs) and the doctor says, oh, that's impossible. It's been extinct for 130 million years. And it's like, uh, no, try 66 million years. (laughs) Right, right. The great (laughs) extinction. The great. uh, Yeah. And, you know, it is interesting because I'm thinking 
later on where it's explained that all of this in this particular, oh, it's almost like Westworld where you have like this one scenario subdivided from mm-hmm. others. This particular scenario is an Earth scenario or Tellurian scenario. So where the plesiosaur come from? Is Are we saying that? Well, from Earth, just in Ness- the past. Must be Nessie is real? <laughs> no, or, we already know about that. That's from yeah. the doctor. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I just, yeah, I agree. It was kind of like, it it, it, it was fun, but I wonder, it, maybe this scenario was concocted by the, the, what, the, um, I can't remember the, I keep wanting to call him Vigo, but that's, you know, uh, or Virgo, but those no, are no, Vorg, Vorg, I will remember. Mm-hmm. Well, the, well, we find out later, though, that he actually never set up the, the miniscope. He won it in gambling, and he doesn't right. actually know how to run it other than to just show whatever is going on in each channel. That's true. That's true. So whoever set it up, maybe you know, grab yeah. the plesiosaur from a different era. That's, uh, that's speak- exactly what happened. Speaking of uh, the plesiosaur attack, we have uh, uh, the upper... the. Uh, the uh, older English gentleman. Uh, I, I I don't have the list of characters right in front of me. Let me go grab that. Major um, Daly or Major Mi- Daly, Mister Daly, and uh, his daughter, and the apparently first well, officer. He is, yeah, he is a major. Yeah, yeah, and his first officer, Harry Sullivan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or in this case, Johnny Andrews, played by Harry Sullivan's uh, actor Ian, Ian Martyr. Yeah, yep. Which was, uh, but I saw it. I'm like. Wait a minute. Yeah, so yet another naval officer, although he's not really a naval officer here. Uh, he's dressed like one, but he's just they have the, this is the best dressed crew of like what looks like a tramp steamer, I have to say. Mm. But uh, yeah, we, we get a, cl- a clear uh, idea that he's an officer aboard. And once again, limited number of faces in the Doctor Who universe. Yep. Yes, yes. Uh and uh, the 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 doctor and Joe get locked up in a cabin, and this is when the doctor reveals that oh, this is the SS Bernice, and you know from his encyclopedic knowledge knows that she mysteriously vanished on June fourth, nineteen twenty six, which which is that very date, which is not a not a real thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he compares it to other, you know, to like the Mary Celeste, but but and the Mary Celeste is a real ship and there is a real mystery connected with the Mary Celeste mm-hmm. but uh although not that it vanished its crew vanished mm-hmm. um but this is not a real ship they Robert Holmes made this one up well, and well then, of course at the end they reverse it anyways right yeah. that's what they, and back that, to the right time so if the doctor it, does change time so apparently this was not a, a I know it wasn't a thing yet but not a fixed point in time for the <laughs> Well, that's that's one interpretation. So when they send the ship, the the way the calendar is is um, on, on it's on it's on major. He is a major. It's on Major Daly's wall, mm-hmm. and he's crossed out the first, the second, and the third uh, of of June. And then when they send it back at the end, I'm like, well, wait. Then why was this ship listed as vanished? If it's if you know why does the doctor know this is a vanished ship if the um if they send it back and we get a post return sequence where Major Daly's daughter comes to visit him in bed as he's about to go to sleep and after she leaves he rolls over and crosses off the fourth now if um he if what he's doing is crossing off the days that have been completed then you guys would be right they changed the they changed earth's history here but if he's crossing off the days as he gets up to them 
then they're about to experience the fourth in the morning. And he and and so they the the doctor didn't save them from disappearing. They're just going to disappear tomorrow. Yeah, I I, I, uh, I think well, it's likely he was crossing off the dates as they finished because he was crossing off as he was going to bed. You're you're you know? probably right, but yeah, it could, I think that's I, I took it likely. a different way. <laughs> I yeah, think well, because it's most likely because that's I mean. I haven't known a lot of people who cross off dates on their calendars, but most people I know that do that, pretty much everybody that I can think of that does that, they do it as the day finishes, not as the day starts, you know? So, I mean, you, you may, we, we don't need to others. belabor this point. Yeah. 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 So yeah. the um, one thing I wanted to say is I do like that Joe gets some stuff to do in this besides just follow the doctor around and ask questions and get in danger. I mean, she does all those things, of course, but they let her um, they let her show her escapology skills because the doctor says the sonic screwdriver only works on electronic locks and they need something more primitive to get out of the cabin they're locked in. And she whips out her skeleton keys and gets them out. And later she does it for herself. Yep. Um, so and they don't even make a big deal out of the fact she's just she just we know she's an escapologist, but they don't even use that word in the episode. She just whips out the skeleton keys and goes to work. Yep. They also let her deduce some things before the doctor has figured them out and then he'll agree with her. But but they let her deduce things, which is nice. And she gets in a nice bit of quick thinking the first time they get discovered by um, by Major Daly and his daughter. Uh, you know, it's like, are you fellow passengers? Why haven't we seen you? And Joe intervenes and says, oh, my uncle meaning the doctor has been has been feeling poorly. So we've been in our cabin and she's the one who comes up with a plausible relationship and explanation for why they're there. Yeah. Although sometimes in the same story, they do write her as kind of dense too. Oh, like, I know. Like why? Yeah, she doesn't know why an air duct would be an important discovery for, you know, for when they're <laughs> running around of, inside the miniscope. Instead of a major computer system, why do you need an air? Why do you need airflow? I don't or, know. And where does the air come from? You know, right. Um, well, why it would be important for them who are trying to escape? You know, it's like, right. well, in, well, and later, later on, she starts talking with Claire and you can see that she's making the connection with Claire, that Claire's kind of going, wait a second, this all seems, you know, she kind of just by, you know, uh, facial expression, Claire's like, we have done this before. This is, this is familiar. But it never bursts through into Claire's consciousness. Um, It gets close. It it gets gets close, close, especially in the, in the post return scene. Yeah. But this is a a part of a general sequence. The, the writing, I mean, there's a certain, and I've talked about it, I even keep lists of of cliches from this kind of radio television writing from several decades ago that is very non-realistic. And it, it, it involves tropes like, but you must believe me, you must, and not providing any evidence for why they should believe you. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the audience, know that they're telling the truth, but the trope is they just say, but you must believe me. And also, we'll just have to take that chance. And, you know, it's a calculated risk. And all these, ugh, it's just, it can be frustrating to me to encounter this kind of cliched dialogue. And they get Joe trapped in a loop of it later when she's on when she's alone back in the miniscope with the doctors outside the miniscope and joe is inside it and she's interacting with the humans and she just over and over and over cannot believe that they don't remember 
And right. it's like, Joe, it's already been established. Let's move on from this. Yes. Yeah. Well, and then there's a, a, a speaking of another Joe thing was at one point early on when they've discovered that they're inside a miniscope and, you know, the, the, the people have been, she just wants to go. She just wants to leave them there. Like the people, mm-hmm. like these people, she says, let's just find the TARDIS and get out of here and leave this all behind. And it seems, I mean, I can guess she's in under stress or whatever, but it seems very much lacking in compassion, which doesn't seem like something Joe as the characters that's been established so far would be. So I thought that was odd. Admittedly, she's in a completely new situation. Mm-hmm. Now she's right. not used to traveling with the doctor in this way. Yeah. So uh, the the one of the things that the uh, these these gray aliens from interminer uh, minorians, yeah. <laughs> whatever you want to call them, I'll just keep calling them the gray. We'll aliens. Just call them interiors. The interior, yeah. right, the interiors. Uh, well, that's, they, that's, uh, I mean, that even sounds like a, a bureaucratic name. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, they do mention at some point when when Vorg and, and, and his assistant, they mentioned that they're carnies. The oh yes we we have banned entertainment on this planet and you're like you know what that's just as more grayness in this gray mm-hmm. planet. They're talking about how it may be lifted now now that the space COVID now that everybody's gotten over space COVID and and it's like okay yeah our government kind of did the same thing they sort of banned amusement during uh, during <laughs> COVID. Yeah. They did they did. <laughs> so. uh one of the interesting aspects of the miniscope is that Vorg can manipulate emotions and he mm-hmm. can make the more, the members, the, the people inside more violent with the, at the turn of a knob. And that's when we get the uh, the doctor boxing Queensberry rules against uh, uh, <laughs> Harry, Harry Sullivan. Sullivan. Pops him in the <laughs> nose. <laughs> he gets they get some pretty good shots on each other, but uh, no, mm-hmm. uh, no um, Venusian Aikido, just nope. uh, boxing straight up. There is another bit that I like just on a on a it's it's made a textually funny. But um, when one of the Drashigs break and by the way, Drashig is an anagram of dishrag. And they (laughs) they 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 Robert Holmes did that because what they would do to give the actors something to to react to, to show them where the Drashig is supposed to be. And then they put the Drashigs in in post-production is they would they would hang a dishrag on a stick. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like this is this is where the drashig is. So react to the dish rag, and so that's how we got drashigs. Um, but uh, but when the drashigs get onto the nineteen twenty six ship, completely banishing the plesiosaur from the plot, um, the uh, uh, you know the guns they have, they they try to use guns, and the guns seem to have a little bit of an effect. I mean, it's hard to tell, but they seem to. Also, Major Daly gets a Tommy gun. So he's yeah. just machine gunning a Drashig, which is really cool to see in a Doctor yeah. Who episode. Um, but ultimately, what they need to do to deal with the Drashigs is use dynamite. And so uh, Harry Sullivan, I'm just going to call him that because it's fun, yeah. um, gets dynamite and is throwing the dynamite. And the doctor is like, no, you'll kill us all. And and he's throwing the dynamite anyway. And that's what breaks the miniscope. Mm-hmm. And it's Harry Sullivan <laughs> throwing explosives. So yep. this is this is just another instance of Harry Sullivan is careless about explosives. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Sullivan is an imbecile. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know that the the whole thing with the trash eggs. See, Holmes makes this big deal about how invulnerable they are. Like, oh, they, you know, 50 fully armed space future soldiers landed on this planet and none of them survived from one trash egg. Not, not even so, the ship. Not even not the ship. Not even the ship. The ship was ship. eaten. And yet some, you know, a bunch of sailors in 1926 can fight them off with, you know, ancient uh, guns and dynamite and even the gray aliens at one point are talking amongst themselves when Vorg isn't around you know one of them is afraid is very afraid of the drashigs and the other one is saying uh he's exaggerating right right. which is what a carny showman is going to do oh i guess yeah yeah i do like the fact that the the one who said oh you know when it comes out we'll just you know run away in the crowd we'll be fine he's the one who ends up getting eaten because of course that was So. At one point, when we're looking on the mini scope, there you know the we're seeing the different areas. We do actually see a Cyberman on screen mm-hmm. and an Ogron. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yep. So, uh, so this I thought that meant this was a Cyberman episode, mm-hmm. but apparently not. Just Cyberman. They just dress a guy up in a Cyberman mask to look at look around the camera. <laughs> yeah. So there are other environments in there. We only get to to visit two of them, though. 1926 Earth and the Drashig planet. Yeah. Where the in that one, the doctor is able to fight off Drashigs with uh, flammable swamp gas, which is yep. um, interesting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we ha- and then we have, as you mentioned, this whole subplot of these two bureaucrats, the brother of the president, uh, one of them trying to have a, a coup. And overthrow his brother uh, mm-hmm. with a with a disaster that would kill a lot of people. I mean, that's one one of the things that they they're hoping for. I mean, it's very cold blooded. Very well, yeah. and that's typical of how Robert Holmes likes to portray bureaucrats. Um, but you know, as self serving, conniving, and unconcerned mm-hmm. about others. Um, but this plot, and it's it's weird that we don't even get to see the president. You know, they talk about him, but we never yeah, get to see right. him. And he's even the brother of this Calic guy. Um, well, it turns out this subplot was added pretty late. Um, and the reason was that um, that there wasn't a clear villain mm. um, otherwise. And there was there wasn't a kind there was a perceived lack of menace and conflict on a broader scale than, oh, we're having an industrial accident at a spaceport. <laughs> right. And so, so they created that to add some intrigue. But it was a late addition, which is apparently part of why we never even see the character that they're trying to topple, which is normally something you'd want to do. Right. Um, we hear about him and we hear about his policies and his actions, but we never even see him. One thing that we probably should mention is, so the Miniscope has a compression field. And if you get out of the miniscope and stay there, stay outside of it for more than a couple of seconds, you start expanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's how the, the you know, at one point, uh, Vorg is reaching in and he pulls out the TARDIS and then he puts it back in. But later the TARDIS gets out another way and it grows back to normal size. And then um, when the doctor gets out after escaping a Drashig, he like falls over and then he expands back to normal size. Right. And so when a couple of Drashigs get out, you know, they expand. And that's really Kalik's plan is he's after he doesn't I don't think he knows it's Harry Sullivan. He just knows it's failing. 
Um, but after Harry Sullivan blows up the inner workings of the miniscope, um, it's starting to fail. It's only got a certain amount of power, and then it's gonna its compression field is gonna shut off, and the drashigs are gonna expand. There's gonna be like twenty of them. That's apparently the size of a drashig colony, and they're gonna run rampant in the city. So that's what Calix's plan is: is to just let it fail, and then the drashigs will re-expand and kill people in the city and let him topple his brother. Like I said, cold blooded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was kind of uh, amusing to see teeny tiny doctor wandering around on the on the, on yeah. the uh, kind of stumbling around uh, out of the miniscope. Um, and then once he this this whole everything that happens on Interminer basically happens in like a customs quarantine area mm-hmm. <laughs> where, yep. where these bureaucrats are trying to eradicate everything. They're trying to eradicate the miniscope and, and deport of Oregon. Uh, um, Sherna, and then they want to eradicate the doctor and they're just, they want to like blast everything. They're just very, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're California scared. COVID officials. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so all that happens there, but one of them, the fun things was, you know, once the doctor's out of the miniscope, they want to question him, but he's has this audacious, questioning of them you know as they're deliberating deliberating over whether to eradicate him as a health menace he's he's interrogating them about this miniscope which i thought was a a fun turn on the tables because as usual the doctor just basically overrides everybody and just like runs over them and and that's what convinces vorg that the doctor must be a fellow carnival worker that he's got the audacity to just take this this inquiry that's directed against him and turn it around against the, the people that are conducting it. Mm. And uh, one of the things that infuriates the doctors when Vorg refers to everything inside the miniscope, all the people as his livestock, uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, the doctor rightfully indignant at such a, a way of referring to people. Uh, so um, that's not my favorite uh, moment of that kind of thing on Doctor Who, though. My favorite moment is in is in a christmas carol where we're in the older kazran sardik's house and mm. he's got i forget her name the woman frozen in a block of ice and the 11th doctor says oh who is that and kazran sardik says oh nobody important and the doctor kind of cocks his head and says funny 900 years traveling space and time and i've never met anyone who wasn't important yes that was really good yeah uh and what's one of the 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 characteristics of the doctor over all of the incarnations is he he cares about everyone and Mm -hmm. you know every person is important except sometimes when they're not but except sometimes (laughs) when they're not or except (laughs) sometimes when you're the sixth doctor or except all the time when you're the failured (laughs) <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, and then, uh, you know, things go crazy. Drashig escape. Uh, we have to, uh, it, uh, Vorg comes to the rescue. He's actually kind of a hero. He's a veteran who he has, turns. uh, uh, from the, what was it, the seventh laser, uh, regiment? I 17th think it was. Heavy laser. Yep. 17th heavy laser. Yeah. And, uh, he happens to have the right, uh, Oh, part to make well, this, work. This is nicely done because um, the 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 gray alien bureaucrats have sat. They've got this eradicator, which is basically it's like a laser machine gun. 
and the functionaries are there to use it. But there's a rule that you can't leave one unattended because it might blow up. And so it needs constant monitoring. But they need to get the the functionaries out of the way so they won't witness part of the plot to overthrow President Zarb. And so the nervous bureaucrat is like, but but we need constant monitoring for the machine. And so Calix says, well, then you'll make sure it won't explode, won't you? And he gets a part. And so this, the nervous guy gets a part out of it. And that will keep it from functioning and also from exploding. Mm-hmm. And so then he's hanging on to this part and their third colleague gets back from checking on some stuff. And it's like, what do I do if he tries to inspect the eradicator? He's going to he'll learn about it's not working. That's going to lead to the discovery of the missing part. That's going to lead to us being accused of sabotage. And so Calix says, just put it in the bag. Just put it in Vorg's luggage. And then if anything goes wrong, we'll conveniently discover it and he'll get the blame. And so 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 the scaredy guy goes and puts I think his name is Orem. Orem. He, he puts he puts the, the part in um, one of Vorg's bags. And then a little bit later, uh, Sherna comes up to Vorg and says, hey, what's this thing? I found it in your bag. And it's the part from the Eradicator. Mm-hmm. And so he that starts him reminiscing about his days with the 17th Heavy Laser Brigade or whatever. And he sticks it in his pocket. And so then when the when the um, when the Drashigs break out and have expanded and have just killed uh, Kalik, he goes Vorg uh, as a former laser artillery guy, goes to the Eradicator, tries to use it, sees it's not working, realizes I've got a part that, that it needs in my pocket. He pulls it out, sticks it in and kills the mm-hmm. um, kills the two Drashigs. So the reason Kalik dies is because he had his buddy sabotage the weapon so mm-hmm. Kalik couldn't def- <laughs> could have couldn't defend him in time, and right. we have this nice little circuitous route for this part, this little part subplot that ends up reconnecting and explaining stuff in the story. I forgot that they had planted that yep. on him. I I watched they, they it wanted, two different times. Yeah, they wanted to blame him for um, for doing the the sabotage in the first place, right? Because you know, as another excuse to basically, you know execute these these aliens instead of just merely kicking them back off the planet right right so uh you know all's well that ends well uh we end with uh the doctor and joe getting into the tardis to return or to go wherever their next adventure takes them and vorg is doing the old shell game with uh mm-hmm. pietrak i think his, his name is pletrak. Pietrak. uh yeah uh yes pletrak who uh is like a lot of apparently like a lot of people from Interminer is very gullible. And so he's big, he's and, like, I'm going to like it here. <laughs> and interesting and in, interested in gambling now. Yeah, right. Yep. Right. He's a good uh, mark. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, this is a great place for the uh, carnies like uh, Vorg and Sherna to, to show up. Uh, and that's where we end the story. So any final thoughts, Father Corey? So I get a kick how uh, Vorg's got supposedly a, um, a, a micrograph, basically a document from President Zarb. Of course, it was oh, yeah. fraudulent, first of all. Um, it was something that he got from some guy that at the last planet they were at. But he holds up this very high-tech device, a cassette tape. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just a cassette tape. Literally, it was a black 
cased cassette tape that they used <laughs> as this micrograph. But did he That's have a pencil a, to wind it up? I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you know what that that is, you're Gen X and earlier. You know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I guess in 1970, what three, four, uh, whatever this was, that the cassette tapes were advanced in high tech. So yeah, yep. And then, <laughs> then I get a kick. There's just one one little line about how the power source was like from the the eternal power eternity perpetual mm-hmm. company. It was a perpetual power source. And of course, they went bankrupt because everybody had these perpetual power sources that didn't need new ones and they never broke. <laughs> There's no planned obsolescence in this company. <laughs> <laughs> they should learn something from American appliance manufacturers. <laughs> Jimmy, how about you? Any Anything else? Um, uh, so speaking of some limitations of the practical effects at the time or the props at the time, mm-hmm. um, I like when the when the, the shuttle has just arrived at customs, they have the functionaries unloading a bunch of crates from it. But the crates look exactly like Christmas presents. They're clearly lightweight cardboard boxes that have been wrapped in silvery um, Christmas wrapping. And yes, and Santa's workshop with a, with a <laughs> string tied around them, and so it's like, okay, these are these are crazy. Santa's elves are scary now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There, there's also a bit at the end where they're the they're playing when they're playing the shell game. They are doing it on it's like a pipe that's sticking up out of the ground, and it, there's a lid for the pipe, and and Vorg is using the lid. Mm-hmm. To put the shells on. And of course, they give them space names. You know, this is a something or other shell, and we've got this something or other P, and we're going to yep. play the shell game. And although they don't even call it that, they've got another name for it. But we get this extended cl- close up of the lid on this pipe where they're playing the game, and it has clearly been cut out of cardboard. Yeah. You know, you can see it's just like they cut out cardboard and spray painted it. Then you can see the the corrugation weave on the inside of the cardboard. Um, So, you know, they were clearly either for budgetary or time or didn't think anyone would notice. Or for some reason, they, they just went with spray painted cardboard for the lid. Didn't even bother taking a piece of, you know of composite wood or and cutting a circle out of that and painting it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, TVs will never show, you know, high definition, you know, it'll always be <laughs> fuzzy and small. So black it'll and work. white. Yeah. Black and- so you mentioned the ball caps kind of get it coming loose near mm-hmm. the end. There's also the other thing was the, uh, the, the grease paint. You could see on some mm-hmm. of the uh, characters, it was not <laughs> very well done around the eyes and around the lips. And so like yeah. you saw this pink skin coming through yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty clearly. So yeah, yeah, it was, uh, they, they took a look, some shortcuts on the, uh, Oh stuff. I wanted to mention one other thing, which was neat that anticipate something later in Doctor Who. So when they're in the miniscope on the 1926 ship, the doctor finds these like plate, this plate in the floor Mm. and they turn to Harry Sullivan and they say, what's that? Because it looks out of place. And Mm -hmm. they say, Oh, this metal doesn't even exist. The doctor later tells Joe, this metal doesn't even exist on earth. And it's like, okay, basically almost all metals are silver. You know, you look at pictures of what's on the periodic table Almost all the metals are just different shades of silver. 
with few exceptions like gold. Um, and and so you really couldn't identify this metal. I mean, if it were purple or something, you could you could say that's yeah. not an earth metal, but it's not. Uh, it's just silver. But what's interesting is Harry Sullivan says, what are you talking about? And he doesn't see it. And the doctor later tells Joe it's been blocked from his consciousness. And so this is anticipating an idea that will become prominent later in Doctor Who, which is a perception filter. Yep. So Harry Sullivan and the other 1926 humans are walking around with perception filters interfering mm-hmm. with their with their ability mm-hmm. to recognize things, whereas the doctor and Joe are not subject to they haven't they're not under the mental effects of the miniscope in the right. same way. And so they they have an unobstructed perception of this hatch that none of the 1926 people can can perceive and investigate. Right, right. I like how in this, this time period, the doctor has multiple tools. He doesn't have just one, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Sonic. Uh, he had to go get another, another tool to release that hatch and, and that sort yeah. of thing. So that was um, it, it makes it makes for a little more drama and plot. It uh, does. Element. And so we've established two limitations on this model of the Sonic screwdriver. It doesn't do it doesn't do mechanical lo- me- yeah. mechanical locks and it doesn't do. This kind of grav of um, is some kind of magnetic lock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like not much good, is it? There's only <laughs> apparently a few kinds of locks it's going to work on. <laughs> that's right. You that's can right. see why the doctor upgraded it. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. So that does it for the our discussion of Carnival of Monsters. Uh, let's get to our feedback. Mm. And our first feedback comes from an uh, older episode. This one goes back a bit uh, from our episode 305, our 13th Doctor retrospective. And Daniel Martinez on Twitter writes, I get the feeling that Chibnall was going for something like an extreme version of the Fifth Doctor, someone more human, vulnerable, and maybe prone to nervousness and worry about what others might think of her. But if so, then it really doesn't get called out as much as it should have. Eric Sayward gave the Fifth Doctor stories like Earthshock and Resurrection of the Daleks, which really exposed just how helpless the Doctor can be at times and impacts the people around him. And Companion even leaves out of being tired of the Doctor not being able to save more people from their deaths and having all this death and destruction around her. If the 13th Doctor had more of that, then I think we'd be getting somewhere better. For as problematic as Eric Sayward was with John Nathan Turner, he still really had this willingness to challenge characters, even the Doctor himself. Makes me more appreciative of material like Resurrection of the Daleks, and likewise, likewise, makes me wish that the 13th Doctor got more material that actually challenged her character more and brought more sides to her character out in other mediums. Yeah, Yeah, this is really unfortunate. I agree that Chibnall was... I think he was trying to do something like a combination of the second and the fifth doctors for the Mm -hmm. 13th. Um, And he and I don't think it worked at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Job number one for um, for Jodie Whittaker's doctor was to be likable. And in the beginning, she was, you know, she was she was a. You know, fairly pleasant, interesting, likable. But as things went on, she got preachy and secretive and just non-heroic and 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 a, 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 a harpy. She was lecturing people, and she became shrill and. And there was too much tell and don't show about mm-hmm. how awesome everyone, especially Yaz, is. And 
And we didn't get to see her character challenged the way Peter Davison's character was challenged. Now, you can't you can't always be killing companions. And the death of Adric is, you know, one of Peter Davison at his most vulnerable. He's also very vulnerable in the caves of Androzani, which mm-hmm. is, which you also can't do all the time because that's his resurrection story, I mean, his regeneration story. Um, but he but he was vulnerable in other things. I mean, right out the gate in Castro Valva, he's he's like this regeneration may fail. And mm-hmm. I have to have my companions put me in the zero room to enable just to survive this regeneration. And um, and and so he did get challenged as a character in ways Jodie Whittaker just never did. She got put in dramatic situations and then she would she would she would arrogantly bluster her way through them. Mm-hmm. And so she would be she switched between being insecure and vulnerable to being arrogant and lecturing and also secretive and not sharing things with her companions to the point that even the companions would confront her. So, you know, they could have they could have killed a companion. Sure. That would, you know, just for dramatic reasons, Um, preferably either um, Ryan or Yaz. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But uh, and that would have, you know, let the doctor show some vulnerability. Um, and especially if they only killed one of them. I mean, now they had, when Adric was killed, they had negative reaction on the backside of that from mm-hmm. Tegan and Nyssa. But today, imagine how, but it, they got over it fairly quickly. Where then they really remember Adric occasionally, but there wasn't any longstanding trauma. Right. But suppose that, you know, you've got Graham, Yaz, and Ryan, and either Yaz or Ryan dies okay if it's if it's ryan graham is now going to have big issues with my my wife died under your watch and now my grandson is dead Ooh, that would be some nice interesting character drama of can Mm -hmm. we keep this relationship this time travel relationship going under those circumstances how is that going to work we could see a very interesting side of jody whittaker's character or if it's yaz that dies um then ryan is a contemporary of yaz and he and graham both could have you know, very questioning reactions of, do we want to continue traveling with you, Doctor? And that would have allowed both of their characters to grow. So actually, I think putting putting the 13th Doctor in a, in a Peter Davison-like situation and losing a companion could significantly have helped the, uh, the, the, the arc of the show at that point. Mm. And D- Daniel's... Uh message implies he'd like to see that perhaps in other medium so i think maybe like in big finish if we ever get 13th mm-hmm. doctor big finish stories yeah. maybe that would be a way to just like we fixed that, uh, a lot about a, the sixth doctor and, with big finish and that could be a possibility i i don't know if i would be personally interested in it i i think they've i mean i don't know i i i suppose you know back in the 90s after 
Doctor Who went on hiatus and, you know, everybody's thinking about the sixth doctor. They were like, I really don't want to hear any more from this guy. They, they blew it with that character. And I think there's a lot of fans and I'll count myself as one of them that think, no, I think they, they blew it with this character. They could have done so much better with this character. Instead, like Jimmy said, they got preachy with it. They got obnoxious with the character. And I think if they had, had made it more, a more vulnerable incarnation of the doctor, it would have been something I would want to hear more. I, I just, I would be afraid. Could big finish do their magic on this character? Would they be bound up by what's already been set with this character and just decide we need to continue with it in that vein? I don't know. I, I would, I would, yeah. if they, if they could do it well, then I would be interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and there's no reason again with their, their record that they won't, but right now, color me not yeah. interested in in hearing what they have to do with it. I was I was going to say the same thing. I mean, if they if they do it and they do it well, okay, I'll be interested. But as of right now, that would be one of the few big finish projects I'm not really waiting for. Yeah, yeah I want even... I want my Doctor Ruth boxed sets. And yeah, those are already <laughs> been announced. Yes. Yeah, yes, I can't wait yeah. for that. Do they even recognize these problems with the 13th Doctor? That's the... You know, well, the and, and, and it would be which companion would they be able to get or choose to get to be with her? Because or a new was, one. I'll be honest, if it's Yaz, I'm not interested. Yeah. I'm maybe really Dan, maybe Graham. I would go Graham would be awesome. Yeah. Graham, Dan would be good. I liked Dan. Yeah. And they so, can always have the Doctor temporarily separated from companions and get new ones, which they've yep. done with other Doctors. Or hang out with River. That would be interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or oh, Missy. <laughs> so our next feedback comes uh, from our most recent episode that uh, that uh, folks may have, well, never mind, from a recent episode, Mission to the Unknown, which was a First Doctor mm-hmm. story. And this comes from Without Mark. the First Doctor. Right. Uh, Mark on YouTube wrote, uh, Terry Nation did eventually succeed with some of the concepts from this episode. Blake 7 was bleak, depressing, and killed off most of its characters. <laughs> That's <laughs> it, what it I'm did. not familiar with, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Blake 7. Is, so it's set in a dystopian future, and um, and there's this guy named Raj Blake. Um, I'm blanking on the actor's name, although it's on the tip of my brain. Um and he he gets roped into a political underground that's trying to fight the power. And they have a ship called the Liberator and they fly around and try to liberate things. And he vanishes halfway through the main character that, mm-hmm. that's named after. He's got, you know, Blake and his seven. He's that he's he's the Blake and he vanishes halfway through. And his sort of slimy second in command, Avon, takes over. And Avon is a great character. Avon is really great. He's very cynical. Um, and then and and we have an early pre Doctor Who appearance of Colin Baker in this as Babin the Butcher, hmm. um, where he's like a homicidal galactic mass murderer who also is a mama's boy, <laughs> and and. Um, and he's just as blustery in this role as he is as Doctor Who, only it works because he's a murderer. Yeah. Um, but then the, in the series finale, they bring back the actor playing Raj Blake. And he came back on the condition they would kill him. Mm. And so it the series ends with Raj and most of the rest of the crew being being killed. Um but not all of them. 
and Big Finish has continued the adventures of Blake Seven, include, and they brought back the original cast for the surviving characters, including Avon. And uh, I haven't listened to those, but I imagine knowing Avon and knowing how Big Finish writes, I expect they would be well worth watching for any Bla- yeah. or listening to for any Blake Seven fan. Yeah, the actor you kind of remember is Gareth Thomas. Gareth Thomas. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover. Of course, not not a shock, you know. Britain is a small yeah. island, uh, yeah. but a lot of crossover with Doctor Who actors. You know. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. As as usual. <laughs> as usual. Oh uh, yeah, we saw Avon in the Sixth Doctor story. Um, is it uh, Time Lash? It might be. Uh, I can't remember. It was definitely a Sixth Doctor story. Where they where uh, it was on an alien planet with a bunch of conniving people, and one of them was the actor who played Avon. Mm-hmm. Paul Darrow is Paul the Darrow, actor, yeah, and uh, yeah, he was in. Uh, I'm just trying to think TV yeah. and Doctor Who. <laughs> I'm trying to do this quick on people, Wikipedia. People, people can look it up on online to to find out the connections. Captain Hawkins in uh, D- Doctor Who and the Silurians. Nope, and Te- and Tecker in Time Lash. He was in both. Time Lash. Yeah. Yep. Tecker in Time Lash. Gotta, gotta look it up because, you know. <laughs> All right. So that's our feedback. Thank you both. Well, if for, we don't, if we don't look it up, other people will, and then they'll write in and then we'll need to do their feedback. So, exactly. Yeah. So we're, well, that's, we're, we're that's good. That, we that. need to, we need to leave things for the audience to, to help us with. So <laughs> tell, us in, tell us in the comments. There yeah. you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, so that does it for this time. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Chris M., Paul S., Brian L., Robert W., and Daniel P. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Simon Yannick, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you thought of Carnival of Monsters. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or send an email to Who at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And you can watch the Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Media, where you can comment and make sure you like and subscribe. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 12th Doctor story, Face the Raven. Until then, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Thank you, Don. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, the tribunal is not deliberating, it's arguing. It's arguing.